It's been a couple of weeks now since our uh, last visited Luke's Gospel. I'll invite you to turn with me, please, to Luke's 19th chapter. We'll be reading verses 11 to, through 27. Luke 19. Jesus, you might remember, has just been using some pretty charged terms with Zacchaeus here in Jericho, just miles from Jerusalem, and that just days prior to the Passover. During this great national pilgrimage to the capital city in Jerusalem for the greatest event of the Jewish calendar, the air is electrically charged with nationalistic fervor. And here is Jesus proclaiming salvation to Zacchaeus' house, calling Zacchaeus a true son of Abraham, calling himself the son of man, referring to himself as the Savior who has come to seek and save the lost. If the disciples weren't quite sure of it up to this point, now they're just certain they just know that the kingdom of God must be about to, to break out full force before their eyes. Jesus is going to rise to the throne. He's going to displace Rome and establish the kingdom of God to remain forever unchallenged on the earth. What better place than Jerusalem? What better time than the Passover? Look, the blind are being given their sight. The lame are, are walking and running. The kingdom is being proclaimed. This, this is it, they're wont to say. But Jesus gives them a bit of a corrective. And true to form, he gives it to them in the form of a parable. And all of the lessons are not strictly for the disciples in that room that day of this parable. They're they're just as true for us today as they ever were, as the very day that Jesus uttered these words. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray, therefore, because your word remains your word and your truth remains unchanged, that these words declared to your disciples now nearly 2,000 years ago will live in our hearts, will uh, direct our thinking but also, Father, be transformative, change our lives, realizing that these are words spoken to us of events still to come for us and for them. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 19, beginning at verse 11. As they heard these things, and he's talking now about the things they heard when Jesus was speaking to Zacchaeus. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, We don't want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. 
The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another king, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you. Because you are a severe man, you take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. If there's any lesson I've learned from my little hobby of trucking on Friday nights, it must be that there is a direct, inexorable link, uh, connection, relationship between what I'm doing now and what I will be doing later, even several hours later. What I choose to do now, specifically how I use this time now, simply must have a direct effect and how things are going to look later. This past Friday night, I was driving north on the Natcher Parkway, cooking along 70 miles an hour, when I saw in the distance ahead the lights of a police car. Uh, that's not unusual to see on the Natcher, even in the middle of the night, but this time something was very different. Uh, instead of being off on the right shoulder with somebody pulled over or in front of him or a broken uh, down car, uh, this policeman had his squad car parked right on the inside lane of the expressway. I started downshifting in the engine, barking through the stacks and braking. And as I came closer through all the bugs on the windshield, I could see him standing there right in the center of my lane with his arm extended like an arrow to the left and his right hand flickering his flashlight to indicate this is where you get off the expressway. On to Route 69, well known to the youngs, like the back of their hand, uh, 69 and Janine too, to, to, uh, to um, Hartford, I went. Now, I had left Scottsville at exactly 10 o'clock, which would have put me in Henderson at exactly midnight. I glanced down at the GPS a screen which confirmed that I 
was exactly on schedule until now. No sooner did my front wheels hit the exit ramp than the word recalculating appeared on the GPS screen and and a new route instantly highlighted and the time of arrival changed from 12 o'clock to 12.07. Sure enough, I arrived about that time, seven minutes later than I'd planned. But that delay cost me on the other end. For one thing, it put me in the back of the line, which, had I been there seven minutes earlier, I would have been in the front of. Uh, Instead of other truckers waiting for me to weigh my wagon, as they say in the CB, why they would have been waiting for me. Uh, Instead of backing into my favorite slot, I ended up backing into some other slot looking at the headlights of a very unconsiderate inconsiderate trucker next to me. One detour from the Natcher Parkway in Hartford changed everything in Henderson. But things uh, were quite different, weren't they, because of that change on the front end. Trucking teaches you to make those connections, to draw those lines between what you do now and the way things are going to look later, even hours later. Jesus wants us to draw some lines here, too, between what we do now and what we will see later, the way things will look later. Sometimes, most times, I suspect, we fail to do that. We don't have the larger view before us all the time. So we give very little thought, much of the time, to connecting the dots between uh, the present and the future, between present actions or inactions and future results or consequences. What Jesus has in mind here in his parable is the connection between our lives today and our lives in the hereafter. And we we need to do this, don't we? Drawing these connections between this life and the next. uh, Because it's not our strong suit. Sometimes I think that we actually live much of our lives today with with a great disconnect in our minds, whether witting or unwitting, uh, between our lives here and now, how we live today and how our lives will look after Jesus returns, after his coming again to the earth to judge the living and the dead. But the Bible all over the place is telling us there is a direct, inexorable connection between the two. There's a continuity, we might say. From what we might call the negative point of view, we've heard Jesus plainly teach, even in this gospel, that as for those who go to hell, some will be beaten severely in hell, and others not so much. There will be different grades, differing degrees of severity to the punishment that will be suffered by unbelievers in hell. It's an essential distinction. It's necessary distinction to Preserve the perfect justice of God. How severe a punishment one person or another will suffer in hell will have to do precisely and proportionately to how he or she lived in this life. How much light did they have? How much did they know? How much suffering did they impose Upon others by their own actions. How many others did they condemn to hell by their own lives 
and words. No one will suffer anything in hell that is not exactly measured to their actions in this life. And no one in hell will suffer one ounce more, will gnash their teeth one more time than they brought on themselves here. Well, on the positive side, what degree of reward, of recompense we receive in the future life, Jesus teaches, will have everything to do with how we live our lives now, in the present, here. He chooses to teach that truth to us uh, in a way that may give us some pause. He puts his instruction in a parable, nothing surprising there. But the figure he uses of himself in the story is the hated ruler to be. Jesus is in the story the nobleman who has to go to a far country to receive a kingdom and then come back and rule it. That may seem a strange thing to us who are accustomed to electing our rulers on a local ballot, uh, but it was not unknown in that culture, particularly under the Roman Empire. In fact, Jesus seems to be drawing on some actual history here that had taken place not long after his own birth and would therefore still be fairly fresh on the minds of many of his hearers. When Herod the Great died in 4 BC, it was obvious to almost everyone that Archelaus, his son, would take his throne in Judea. However, there was only one man in the entire world who had the power and the authority to crown Archelaus king the emperor Caesar in Rome. Although Archelaus began to rule immediately upon the death of his father, his royal title could only be ratified by Caesar Augustus himself. So Archelaus made for Rome his long journey where he expected to be crowned king in the temple of the Palatine Apollo. Unfortunately for Archelaus, there was active opposition to his monarchy, And when he arrived in Rome, he discovered that some of his own family members were rival claimants uh, to the throne. Even worse, a delegation of 50 Jewish leaders came from Jerusalem seeking audience with Caesar and claiming that Archelaus was unfit to govern. During Passover, there had been a disturbance at the temple and the soldiers of Archelaus had rashly slaughtered some 3,000 of the worshipers. The delegation from Jerusalem, backed by thousands of Jews who were then living in Rome, petitioned Caesar to liberate them from the authority of Archelaus. The whole business took a, quite a bit longer than anyone expected, but eventually Caesar decided to give Archelaus a chance to prove that he was worthy to be king. Not surprisingly, when Archelaus returned to Judea, He executed swift punishment against the men who had rebelled against his rule. This being the Passover season now, and back to the text today, and and the king's old winter palace being near the road between Jericho and Jerusalem, it would not be unreasonable for us to imagine that Jesus has Archelaus in mind. At any rate, what happened to the nobleman in this parable sounds very much like what happened to Archelaus. He went to a far country to receive a kingdom and then return. But a delegation was sent to prevent his 
coronation. Now, Jesus, of course, is not a wicked ruler, not in any sense, but his kingdom, his kingship uh, was established in much the same way, a trip to a far country through death, through the grave, ascending to heaven, crowned there in heavenly glory, and eventually to return. Alas, many citizens would reject, even kill him, while others refused to believe in him. In fact, they still lodge their complaint today. We hear it all the time, in one form or another, we don't want him for our king. It's in the parallels between the parable and the reality that we find the lessons for ourselves. In the, in the delay, in the king's return, in the duty of the subjects during the king's absence, and in the declarations that are made upon the king's return. First, notice the delay in the king's return. We can all understand, I think, uh, why the disciples might have thought that what they were witnessing in their day at that moment was the big and final establishment of the kingdom. We can understand that, right? But that grand consummation was not yet to be, which is precisely why Jesus tells them this parable, according to verse 11, because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. The most obvious point of the parable is that there was to be, even as there already has been, in a sense, a gap, a delay between Jesus coming to earth to live, to die, to rise again, to ascend into heaven on the one hand, and his return to judge on the other. Now, that's not to say that the kingdom has not already been established uh, not already come to earth. It has. Jesus has established his rule over the earth through the cross, through his resurrection from the dead. But the kingdom is not yet established in all of its glory, in the fullness of his final glory. Now, some scholars really struggle with this. They have a little heartburn over the fact that uh, the Bible seems to indicate in some places that Jesus was coming again soon. And yet it's been these nearly 2,000 years since Jesus' ascension into heaven. We'll not spend any time this morning on the question. Maybe come back to it another time. Now, this much we do know. There is no contradiction in the Bible on this matter. And certainly not to the divine mind, which, as the Apostle Peter writes, or to which uh, a thousand years is as a day. The point for us to notice today is that we are living in a day between what Bible scholars call the already and the not yet. Jesus has come. He has come with his kingdom. He has planted his flag on the earth and declared, not a square inch is anything but mine. He has already done that. And yet, he is going to come again in glory to consummate that kingdom at a time known only to the divine mind. That's always been God's intent all along, as Jesus makes clear in this parable. Meanwhile, we wait. But it's not an empty waiting. It's not a, a twiddling of the thumbs sort of waiting in the meantime. 
While the king is away, we have our orders. So though there is a delay, yet second, we have a duty in the meantime. During this time between Christ's coming and his coming again, we, like the the nobleman's servants, have been entrusted with kingdom resources. In the parable, before the master left, he gave to the ten servants ten minas, one mina each, uh, to engage in business, he says, while I'm away. The implication, of course, is turn my one mina into more. Invest it somehow for the profit of the one who will return as king. Now, not to put too fine a point on it, we are those servants. We are those servants. We are waiting for his royal return. But in the meantime, he's entrusted to us, to you, to every one of you, and to me, his resources. We're to carry out kingdom business, to invest what he has entrusted to us until he returns, till the king appears. And when he does, what he entrusted, what he has entrusted to us, he must find multiplied with profit. So the question then becomes, what has he entrusted to you? What mina has he placed in your hand for you to invest? And give him with interest at his return. Well, well, he's entrusted you all and me with time. He's given us all minutes and days and months and years. How are you investing those minutes and those hours? How are you spending them? What kind of profit are you turning your time into, however much or however little that might prove to be, 50, 60, 70, 80 years, maybe many fewer than that, maybe more than that. He's given us minas, too. I mean, we call them dollars. How are you investing your dollars? What kind of profit are your dollars making for the kingdom of God? Open your checkbook sometime. Take a look. Where are you investing your dollars? What kind of profit are they making for the kingdom of God? Are you turning your dollars into souls by investing in God's kingdom and expanding it for his return? God has given you some gift, maybe, some talent. You are a gifted administrator or gifted at hospitality or particularly at encouragement. Those are your minas to invest Until the king comes back. Some of you have houses full of little children. Those are your minas. Those are your investments. Train them up in the way they should go. And they will in turn invest as well in the kingdom of God and have returns when he comes back. Anything done, as a matter of fact, with intent to glorify God. Your work. Your home life. Even your recreation, those, those things done to the glory of God will, it, will return upon investments for his return. Anything done to glorify him. That's your duty, my brothers and sisters. 
while he delays and for as long as he delays. But he will not delay forever. It may be during your own lifetime that you will see the king come in his glory. It may be after your swollen body have parted ways for a time, but the king is coming. Which brings me to the final and third point. When he comes again, he will make some declarations about you. Every single one of you. He will make public declarations and determinations concerning your condition for the rest of eternity. On the day of reckoning, the king will require, he will demand an accounting from you of what you've done, how you've invested his minus, how you've invested your time, your money, your energy, and how we invested those in this life will determine our place, our reward in the life to come. Curiously, the reward here comes in the form of responsibility. Who invests a mina turns it into uh, a city. Who invests well um, and makes ten gets ten cities. So the one who turns it into five, five cities. His rewards do not take the form of more sleep uh, or pleasure per se, but of responsibility and of authority. But true servants of God... Uh, find more and will find more pleasure, not in sitting back for the rest of eternity and doing nothing, but in doing more for the kingdom of God and the life to come than they did even in this life, only unhindered by sin and by all those weights that hold us back and, and hold us down. But here's the point. What you do now with this life matters Deeply for the life to come. You may enter heaven like I entered Henderson Friday night, but the route you take, the faithfulness with which you live or fail to live with, will have everything to do with your condition on the other side of the judgment. John Flavel, the English Puritan, wrote, Our actions physically considered are transient, but morally considered they are permanent. Horatius Bonar has a verse to the same effect. Fill up each hour with what will last. Buy up the moments as they go. The life above When this is past, is the ripe fruit of life below. Or as the author of the letter to the Hebrews says, For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love with which you showed, I mean, which you showed for his sake in serving the saints, as you still do. God never calls you to serve him without promising promising that he will recognize the work that you do and the faithfulness with which you do it and reward it. And what must that mean for you today? 
This is your day. This is your time. Invest it well. Your works are not insignificant. They may have nothing to do with uh, how you're made righteous before God. Yes, that is true. But they are most certainly considered in the judgment of God and determine your place and the measure of your reward in heaven forever. In the heavenly kingdom, in the new heavens and the new earth. We cannot deny this, this whole doctrine of reward for faithfulness. The Bible is simply too clear on the point. Nor should we care to deny it. Of course it matters deeply to God how his children live their lives. And being the just and faithful father that he is, he will reward his children accordingly. But one last thing to keep in mind. At the very same time, we will not forget, we cannot forget that without Christ, we can do nothing. And that when we've done everything that is required of us, we're still unprofitable servants. His rewards far, far exceed anything we could ever deserve. Even our best works have sin mixed with them. You know that. You hate it. I do too. As Augustine put it long ago, when God rewards the faithfulness of his people, he is only crowning his own gifts. And when in the Lord's parable for ten minas, the faithful servant is rewarded with the responsibility for ten cities, (laughs) well, then we know this is grace. This is grace at work here. More than simple calculation on a calculator. More than simply our desserts. A city? For a mina? A mina was worth about 100 drachmas, about, a, about three months' wages for a laborer. A city for a mina. A mina wasn't enough to buy a peasant's hut. But here, in God's economy, it brings a city for the one who faithfully uses the mina. Yes, my brothers and sisters, this is reward. But it is the reward of grace. Amen.